Michelle. Hi, I'm Caitlin. Welcome to Better Words. Hello everyone. Hi. So Kate, thank you for coming to Rockhampton for Capricorn. Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. So Kate, you've written over 45 books um, across a range of different genres and for different age ranges so everything from the impossible quest for middle grade readers right through to your really rich historical fictions like bitter greens and the beast's garden um, but we'd like to start by taking you back to your childhood really uh, and where your love of reading started so you experienced quite a traumatic event as a child can you tell us a little bit about that and how that really affected your reading and also sparked an interest in fairy tales. Yeah, so when I was a little girl, um, you, you kind of got to imagine me as being like a toddler in nappies. Um, my father was a vet and we lived in the vet hospital. And my mother was out washing, hanging out the washing one day and I was riding round and round on my little dinky tricycle and um, a dog that was tied up under a tree nearby lunged forward and grabbed me off my tricycle, you know, grabbed my head um, and dragged me off the bicycle. Um, my mum had to try and um, save me from this savage dog and so she ended up having to almost break the dog's jaws to get my head free. Um, she ran out into the road and um, uh, hailed down a passing car and who, who took me to hospital. Um, I ended up having more than 200 stitches all over my head. I lost my ear, they had to sew my ear back on, and um, I hurt my eye. So I was in a coma for six weeks. I don't remember it. My mum is still traumatised all these years later. Um, as a consequence of that accident, I spent the next 10 years in and out of hospital. And when I was 11 years old, I became the first Australian to have an artificial tear duct. So there's only about five of us in, in Australia. Um, so because I spent so much time in hospital as a little girl, um, you know, books were my only source of comfort, my only consolation. I read all day, every day. And so my mother would kind of bring me a pile of books. When she came to visit me, she'd bring five or six books every single day. And so it was actually fantastic training for a writer because all I had to do was read books all day. It was wonderful. <laughs> that's our dream, really. Yeah, that's right. So then, so many of your works are based on or derived from fairy tales. Um, you've actually also studied them academically. So why do you think your love of fairy tales has endured so long and evolved from childhood into adulthood? Yeah, so I can remember the um, day that my mother first gave me my first fairy tale book. Um, I, I was being rushed to hospital in the middle of the night. I was very, very sick. I you know, was being raced down the hallways with those kind of fluorescent lights flashing over my eyes. I was kind of pinned into that hospital bed and my mum pressed a copy of Grim Fairy Tales into my hands and she said, darling, you know, I'm sorry, but I have to go. Uh, she had two other children. She was a single working mother. She couldn't stay with me in hospital. And so I, I can remember hearing her heels hurrying away down the, you know, down the hallway and then I was left alone in, in hospital once more. Now, um, I just read that, that book of fairy tales all night um, and what 
you know, what fairy tales do for us is that they, well, you know, they give us hope uh, that we can be uh, healed. They give us hope that we can escape. They give us hope that we can change our world for the better. Fairy tales are, are, are stories of triumph and transformation. And, um, and so hope is at their heart. So as a little girl, you know, locked up on my own in hospital, lonely and frightened and very, very sick, fairy tales were like my only source of sunshine in my life at that time. Um, so I've always been fascinated by them. I've always loved to read them and also to read fairy tale retellings. I first studied them in my first degree, which was in literature, um, and that kind of fed my fascination with them. Uh, you know, some of my stories are, are fairy tale retellings, but many of them are, are not. But I do draw upon their symbols and structures, their kind of metaphors, to kind of tap into that archetypal energy that they have. I think so many people could relate to um, loving a book for life because of an event. So I think for a lot of people that might be Harry Potter that you read over and over again. Yeah, and that really helps you through some dark times. So I think that's something a lot of people can probably relate to. Yeah, I think it's, it's a really important um, you know, purpose for stories, you know, for books and films and art. I mean, you know, they are there to, to help and comfort us when we need it. And it's a rare person that doesn't have dark times in their life. And, you know, art shines a light, um, you know, into those dark times. Um, there's a quote I really like which says that um, the purpose of art is to comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable. Um, so fairy tales do have a history of being modified and, and sort of imbued with new meaning from each time they're retold. So how do you feel about continuing that tradition in your contemporary retellings of these through the Beast Garden and Bitter Greens and Beauty and Thorns? So I, I did my doctorate in fairy tales. I am a doctor of fairy tales. It's a pretty <laughs> rare thing to be. But the, the purpose of my, of my doctorate was to investigate why stories like fairy tales survive when other things die. And basically, um, just to summarise my extremely long doctoral thesis down to a single sentence, um, stories only survive if they are retold. And not just stories, any unit of cultural information. So a recipe, a joke, a song, a nursery rhyme. It only survives if it is told again. And it, they kind of travel across geographies and over generations. So, you know, the recipes that we now cook our families, our great, 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 great grandparents were cooking very similar things. The nursery rhymes that we sing to our babies and the stories that we tell them, these are human creations that have survived often for thousands of years. If they aren't retold, they die. So why is it a story? So my doctorate was on Rapunzel, one of the oldest of all fairy tales. Why did Rapunzel survive when other tales didn't? And there's, and there's two reasons. The first is it must be memorable. People must remember the tale so they can then retell it. And so if, if the story hasn't scored itself into their memory, they won't retell it. So the, all the motifs of fairy tales, like the glass slipper 
or the enchanted mirror or the talking frog, these things make them memorable. And so if you are a, a, a creator of art, make your art memorable and it, it will survive. The second thing is it must be relevant both to the teller and to their audience. So let's have a little look at Rapunzel. Why do people remember Rapunzel? Well, it's a story about a girl who is locked up in a tower that has an impossibly long hair, which is used as a ladder to gain ingress to her. It's a story about feminine power. It's a story about someone who is held back against their will. So the tower stands as a symbol or a metaphor for everything in our life that holds us back. It might be a job that you hate. It might be a relationship that is toxic to you. It might be your own fear. The tower can be interpreted in a multitude of different ways. And it's that flexibility of meaning that makes fairy tales so powerful and makes them endure. You know, not all fairy tales will talk to all people, but nearly everyone will find that there is some fairy tale that for some inexplicable reason moves them and speaks to them. Wow, everyone has one. Everyone has a fairy tale. Um, our next question was about why you think those stories at their heart have remained the same over different retellings and incarnations over the years and generations. But, which you sort of explained, is that they have to be memorable. But what do you think we still have to learn from these stories? The fact of the matter is the story does not stay the same. The story changes. Each new generation, the story changes in some way. So, you know, um, so let's take a look at the oldest fairy tale of all time is Cinderella. So Cinderella, before it became Cinderella, originated in China, about 400 BC. It's a Chinese folk tale. And in the original version, there was no glass slippers, there was no fairy godmother, there was actually a fish. Uh, a, a, a girl's mother died and her, her mother's ghost came and inhabited a fish and would give the girl comfort. And the girl's stepmother killed the fish and made the girl eat, eat the fish. So it, was, it had this kind of cannibalism in the heart of it. But the story traveled over the Silk Roads. It traveled just like um, tea or um, silk or um, you know, gold or silver or amber it, or like a disease. <laughs> it traveled along the Silk Roads and as it traveled, it changed because each new, each new teller would uh, retell the tale to suit their audience. So in the original Chinese version, the slippers were gold. And we can now track how the story kind of, you know, disseminated throughout the world, but, you know, by the, how the motifs have changed. So in Hungary, there's a, a Cinderella type story where the, the fairy godmother is a cow and the stepmother kills the cow and makes the girl eat its flesh. We know that that story came straight from China. It didn't go via France, because in France, it was changed into a tree, not a fish or a cow, um, and the slippers were changed from gold to glass. 
So anyone that has a glass slipper in their tail, we know they're drawing upon the French version of the story, not the you know, other versions of it. Now, the grim version is called Ashen Puddle. It's very, very similar to the French version, which was retold by Charles Perrault, except that the slippers are golden. And so we know that the Grimm's didn't take their story from the French tradition. They were drawing on older versions of the tale. This is how we study fairy tales. So interesting. Fascinating. And we could talk about fairy tales all day. But so much else to talk about. <laughs> you do have an amazing career. Um, and again, I'd like to sort of go back to your childhood a little bit because writing's always been part of your life. So you started writing your first novel at seven but it's also in your blood because you're a descendant of the first woman to publish a book for children in Australia. And there was quite a lot of mystery around that. Can you fill us yeah. in a little bit? I'm actually writing a book at the moment with my sister about our, our ancestry. So my great, 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 great grandmother wrote the first children's book published in Australia. It was called A Mother's Offering to Her Children by a Lady Long Resident in New South Wales. And it was published in 1841. So it's, it's a long time ago. We're actually coming up to the 180th anniversary of that publication. So her, her name was Charlotte Waring Atkinson, and she came out to Australia to be a governess to the MacArthur family. But on board the boat, she met a young man, fell in love, and married him. And so she wasn't a, a governess for the MacArthur family very, very long. Now, she, she, there are a lot of writers in her family. You know, she had a, an aunt who used to write hymns and another uncle that used to write poetry. Um, she, her husband died and left her a widow with four young children, four children under the age of seven. And because she was a woman, and you know, in their e eternal wisdom, the men of the day didn't think that women could manage their own money. She was not allowed to inherit anything. All the money was kept in trust for her son, who was two years old. And so for the next 19 years, she had to struggle to support herself and her family. And so she did this by writing this book, which was a bestseller in its day. Now, her story is one of incredible um, struggle, um, incredible triumphs over overwhelming odds. Um, the the government tried to take her children away from her because they didn't think that a, um, a mother was capable of raising her own children. So she took them to court and fought this long battle to, to retain um, custody of her own children. And she, she won the case. This was also in 1841. It's a famous legal case. It's the first time in Australian history that a woman was allowed to care for her own children. They wanted to take her children away from them and put them in the hands of a minister, a man they never met, who was only 24 years old. So they thought a young man was going to be a better guardian to her children than their own mother. And you can thank my ancestor for so much of the feminist rights in this country. Yeah. It was a landmark legal case. So. A lot of great wow. material there for us to write about. I'm fascinated to read more about her. She sounds like such a badass. I love her. So our book comes out in 2021. You can read all about it then. <laughs> we are eagerly awaiting that already. No pressure. No pressure. <laughs> but her, her daughter was actually Louisa Atkinson, who is the first Australian-born female novelist. So I come from um, literary royalty. 
<laughs> anyway, in, in Australia. But there was some mystery around her identity as the author of that book. That is absolutely so. right. The book was published anonymously by Lady Long Wesson in New South Wales. And everyone in my family knew that our ancestor had written this book. But no one in the world did. Um, and it was actually this kind of big detective hunt. This um, bibliographer called Marcy Muir set out to find out the true identity of the woman who wrote Australia's first children's book. And she spent 15 years hunting down through, you know, letters, diaries, newspaper reports, everything else. And she finally found out the identity and it was this big, massive excitement. And my grandfather's going, well, they could have asked us. We, we knew. You know, we, we, we have a lot, like we have, um, so the first edition of her book is worth $60,000 and there were only three, three copies left in, in the world. We, our family has her sketchbooks, it has her, her diaries. We have all this material that's been handed down. Most of it's now in the National Library, so we get to go and visit it. But we're not allowed to own it anymore because it's just too, it's, it's too valuable. So that they actually have a literary prize um, named after my ancestor, and which is um, a prize for a children's writer. It's called the uh, Charlotte Waring Barton Award. And when they announced that at the Lady Cutler dinner, they wanted to have a first edition copy of the book there for people to look at, but they couldn't afford the security guards and the insurance and so, you know, we all have second editions. I, I, I've got two copies of, of the second. So, we, you know, we bought those along. But, you know, the first edition is so rare and so valuable that it was, it was going to, like, cost them, I think it was going to cost $24,000 to have security on it overnight. Wow, overnight. that is so impressive. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's fun, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's amazing. After, you know, that's <laughs> an impressive history behind you. When did you... I was going to be a writer. Um, I was born knowing it. Um, and my mother says that I was writing poems and stories from the time I could hold a pencil. Um, I wrote my first poem when I was four. I wrote my first story before I was five. And I'd written my first novel by the time I was seven. Um, I wrote it longhand in an old school exercise book. It had a title page. It was called Runaway. And then I had my name. And then I had down the bottom published London, New York, and Sydney. <laughs> so even when I was seven, I was trying to pretend my book was really published and I was an internationally best-selling author. <laughs> so I always that's knew exactly what I wanted dreams. to be. Yeah. yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> By the time I, I finished school, I had written 10 novels. So I did my apprenticeship when I was a kid. Um, my life plan was to finish school, have a novel published, been internationally best-selling author, and that was just going to be like the rest of my life. But it was not that easy. It took me, I wasn't published till I was 30. And when I first tried to get published when I was 16, that was, a that was like half my life, struggling and trying to get published. Everyone says to me now, oh my God, you were so young, you know, to be published by the time you were 30. But I thought I, I was going to die. Like, not young enough. <laughs> <laughs> no, I want to be published when I was 17. <laughs> 
So what did you do in between in between then while you were while you were writing and struggling to get published? Um, so I was really lucky because I had um, an amazing English teacher um, who was very sympathetic to me and very, very supportive of my dreams. A lot of people were saying things to me like, oh, writing is a lovely hobby, darling, but you really should do something sensible with your life, you know, earn some money, have a job. I knew this is what I wanted to do with my life. Well, my English teacher said to me, she said, look, um, Kate, I have absolute faith in you that you will, that you will make your dreams come true. But the best advice that I can give you is um, to be a good writer, you must be a good reader. So why don't you go to university and study literature? And then why don't you just do a couple of practical courses like media and journalism? And you, so you still be writing, but you, you, know, you learn a practical application of your talent. And so that's what I did. I listened to my English teacher. My first um, degree was in literature with a minor in mass communications and media. Very yeah. similar to what you're yeah, studying, both I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then when I finished um, uni, I worked as a journalist. So I was a Fairfax journalist. It was, you know, I want you to imagine us in a cellar, chained to a hot computer, <laughs> producing up to 20 articles a day. I'd like to say that our editor, you know, kind of got to wear tight leather pants and had a whip, but no. He just walked around, you know, kind of with his, his cigarette dropping ash everywhere and, you know, harder, faster, more stories, more stories, come on girls! So it was actually great training for me as a writer because I learned to write to a deadline. I learned to adhere to a, a set word count. Um, I learned to um, recognise a market and adapt my style for that market. And I got to write all day, every day, so I built up my writing stamina. So it was actually great training uh, for me. But when I was 25 years old, I had a quarter-life crisis that involved quite a lot of kind of, you know, moping and sobbing. My true life is being denied me. So um, I quit, I quit full-time work. I did my master's degree in creative writing and I freelanced and I worked on my first novel, uh, which you can buy today at the bookshop. Dragon Claw was my first novel and it transformed my life. I was a desperately poor university student, um, doing a Masters of Arts, um, you know, freelancing, which is not a good way to make a lot of money. Um, and it was a bestseller, and I've been a full-time writer ever since. So it's... Um, Dreams do come true. Yeah. <laughs> so as you mentioned, Dragon Claw, your first, it's for young adults. So that was your first novel. And then you've also written the Impossible Quest series for your middle grade readers and a lot of adult books as well. So obviously you can write for a range of different Yeah, readers. I always say I can write from birth until death. Because <laughs> I've got picture books as well. Yes. And, and books for younger readers. So, um, you know, you can start reading me like when you're a day old and read me right up until the day before you die. I love that. <laughs> uh, but how, you know, is there much difference between writing for all of these age groups or are the basics quite the same, do you find? It's a really, really, really good question and it's one that I get asked a lot. Um, yes, there are obviously a big difference between writing a book for an eight-year-old um, and writing a book for an adult. Um, the 
the language that you use, the length of your sentences, the length of your chapters, the length of the books are themselves. But the core story is the same. Um, they have different challenges. When, when you're writing for kids, the challenge is, is every word must count. You can't waste time. So you, building character, creating setting, and building your plot has to be spot on every single second. You know, the characters have to live and breathe and dance from the very time that they appear on the page. You, you can't take three chapters to set up character. You must do it in only a sentence. And that's really, really, really good training for adult writers because adult writers can ramble quite terribly sometimes. They should try writing for children and learn how to really, really tell a story in its pure essentials. But basically, the, the shape and structure of storytelling is the same regardless of the length of the story. Um, I always know what I'm writing when I sit down, and so I always know who my ideal reader is, and I just simply write for them. It's usually, like if I'm writing kids' books, me at 11 was my ideal reader. So, you know, a real bookworm that would read at night under the covers with a torch, a kid that would kind of, you know, miss their bus stop because they were reading and so absorbed in the book that they, they couldn't get, they didn't realize that they were home. I mean, I used to read walking home from school. And I remember once one of my neighbors honking at me and looking up and I was like six, six blocks past my turn off because I was reading as I walked home from school. So that's I do that now with yeah. audiobooks to come into my room in the morning and I would have fallen asleep with a book on my face or on my chest. Yeah. I once actually set my bed on fire when I was five because I fell asleep. I fell asleep with my bedside lamp burning onto the book. And um, I often when I go out to schools I tell this story and then I say to the kids, I say, and what do you think is the moral of this story? And they all go don't read in bed? No, I say, you must always read in bed. Just use a torch and not a bedside lamp. No, the moral of the story is don't read a boring book and then you won't fall asleep. <laughs> I think that's a great message. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So then we have spoken a little bit about your works for lots of, lots of different audiences, but you have actually published more than 45 different books. Yes. So tell us about your writing process. How do you write so quickly? Has your writing process changed since you were first published? Um, so when I quit full-time work as a journalist, I knew that I wanted to be a writer. I knew I wanted to make my living from my writing and that I um, wanted to spend my life every day writing. So I approached my writing in a very professional manner. So I decided that I was going to pretend that I was still a journalist. So I had to, ha had to be up, dressed, have breakfast, and at my computer by 9 a.m. So none of this kind of lolling around in bed, playing on social media and thinking I'll write it this afternoon. No, I was, if I wasn't at my computer by 9 a.m., then I was late to work. And then I worked all day, every day, in as, uh, as focused and disciplined and methodical way possible and um, it meant that right from the very very beginning I was very um, well I suppose disciplined is is the word and that hasn't changed at all what I have learned along the way in my 
44 books in 22 years, um, I now plan much better. I plan the books much better and I plan my time much better. So I set myself targets, you know, word count targets, and um, if I don't make my weekly word count, well, you know, I was going to say I punish myself, but I don't mean like that I, I flagellate myself. <laughs> I simply mean that I'm not allowed to go out to, out to lunch with my friends until I finish writing no my social life until your homework. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, one of the reasons why I'm so, so productive is that I write every day. It's a very, I mean, I wrote in my diary this morning. I only wrote a couple of paragraphs, but I write in my journal every single day. If I'm not writing a novel, I'm writing poetry, I'm writing essays, I write every single day. And so it's a little bit like a ballerina, you know, practicing every day. It means that when I write, I can write swiftly and fluently. The other thing that I do is I plan quite carefully. And if you plan, um, it means that you don't, you don't get writer's block nearly so much. And you also, you, you don't get lost in the narrative. You don't write 100,000 words that then needs to be cut. And that makes me far more efficient. Now people say, but this is, you're meant to be creative and imaginative and intuitive. We, we should be talking about efficiency and productivity. But the truth of the matter is, is that I support my family from my writing. I support myself with my writing. And if I didn't write, if I wasn't productive, I'd have to go and get another job. And who wants to do that? Who wants to do that? <laughs> exactly. So I'm just very focused, very disciplined. And because I'm, I'm, you know, my head is in my writing all the time, it means that everything in my life is bent to my writing, you know, my books. Yeah. So The Beast Garden is your retelling of The Beauty and the Beast set in Nazi Germany. Um, at the end of that, I found it quite interesting to hear you talk about, because I listened to the audiobook, so I heard you talk about how that idea had come to you while you were writing The Wild yeah. Girl, I think yeah. it was, yes, um, and how you sort of played around with it for a while, how it seemed to follow you a little bit. So I'm quite interested to know how you deal with ideas and how you know what's worth pursuing for a novel and what's something that you might either come back to later or maybe completely forget okay. about? Um, it's actually a fantastic question and a really important question, I think. Um, I, can, uh, I can only tell if an idea is good or not in how I feel it in my body. So if I get chills, if I get that, that rush of excitement and adrenaline, if I can't sleep because my brain's on fire with ideas, if I am... Um, excited, then I know it's something I can write. People come to me all the time with ideas and say, can you write this for me? And I go, mm, no. Nah. You, know, you know, the hairs aren't standing up on my arms. I haven't got that thrill of nerves in the pit of my stomach. My heart's not beating faster. No, nah, it's, it's not for me. So I, I'm someone who writes only from inspiration. But luckily for me, inspiration comes every single day. <laughs> um, I think that um, I think that most people, you know, have what I would call story ideas. They just don't know that they're story ideas. So it, anything that makes you feel, if you feel angry, 
or curious or excited or you think you said, wow, that's really cool, I didn't know that. That is a story idea. You know, because I live, you know, I live every day making stories, I'm awake and alert to... Like constantly on the lookout. Yeah, you know, well, you know, the, the universe just throws stories at me all the time. You know, I, I get more ideas than I could ever write. So how do I choose which one to write? It's my level of excitement how excited I am about it, how much it disturbs my sleep. Like I know a, a book is coming to life in my imagination when I begin to dream about it and when I'm daydreaming about it all the time and when it, there are hundreds of little serendipitous you know, discoveries happening all the time, then I feel like you know, the story's talking to me and I am, you know, I'm receptive to it. So can you explain a little bit then about the, what happened with the Beast Garden and how that sort of flowed? Because I believe there was a little bit of a, there was a discovery there too that could have re, reinvigorated an idea that you had for a while yeah. too. So um, the Beast Garden is um, a novel set in World War II in Nazi Germany. Um, it's about the underground resistance to, ha you know, to Hitler um, in, in Berlin, you know, the nerve center of Nazism. Now, my, my original idea for that, um, I, was, I was in the middle of my doctorate and I was writing a chapter about the Grimm brothers and I was working on a novel called The Wild Girl about the Grimm brothers. And I had read this um, throwaway line um, that Hitler's favorite books were the Grimm brothers. And when he was you know, the dictator of Germany, there were only two books that he recommended every family had. One was his own, Mein Kampf. That's a way to get into a bestseller list, isn't it? Yeah, so, and the other one was the Grimm Brothers. Now, I found this really distressing because, you know, the Grimm Brothers have been so important to me and fairy tales have been so important to me and yet Hitler stands for everything that I abhor in the world. And so, after the Allied won the Second World War, they actually banned fairy tales in Germany. For 14 years, no one was allowed to read fairy tales or weren't allowed to read the Grimm Brothers anyway. And because the idea was, it was that kind of ideology that had led to Nazism. And so I went to bed all kind of bothered and upset by this. Those poor little German children not allowed to be able to read fairy tales. But how awful that Hitler loved fairy tales. I was all worried and upset. Um, and I had a, I called it a dream, but it's not really a dream. When I was waking up the following morning, I actually got up, couldn't sleep, and I ended up reading a World War II thriller till about 3 a.m. And then I went, went to sleep. When I woke up, I had a very strong vision. I saw a young woman in a golden dress leaning on a black, shining grand piano in some kind of nightclub. It's all dark. And she was singing this incredibly heartfelt song. And in the, in the audience were SS officers in their in their black uniforms with their you know, 
swastikas around their arms, and they were all watching her in this quite awful way. And I knew, all I knew about this young woman, that she was there singing to these SS officers because she was trying to save someone's life. Now, I was meant, I was meant to be writing The Wild Girl. I was meant to be doing my doctorate. And I got up and I spent the next six days researching resistance fighters in Berlin. And that was how I discovered the story of, of the Beast Garden. It just came to me in a dream or a kind of vision. Wow. I love hearing stories like that about how these stories almost forced their way into your mind. Yeah. I mean, you know, people ask me a lot. I mean, you know, so people would say to me, why did you decide to retell Beauty and the Beats in, in Nazi Germany? And I, I have to say, well, I didn't really decide. I had to. Yeah, you know, <laughs> the story was an imperative for me. I had to write it. And I believe that the story chose me. You know, there's that beautiful story that Elizabeth Gilbert tells about how, you know, if, if a writer ignores a story, it only knocks so long and then it goes, well, you're no use to me, and it goes off and finds someone else. I was going to say that. She, she says that if you're not open to the ideas, then they will just flow on to someone else, but they're all around you. Yeah. You, yeah, the inspiration is always there. It's whether you're receptive That's exactly to what I believe, but it's, it's quite hard to describe it without kind of getting all quasi-mystical about it. Yeah, um, but just about any writer, if, if they, or any creative artist, in the music, in the visual arts, you, you, you cannot spend months and months and months and months devoting yourself to a very hard and challenging job if you are not driven by something, by some strong emotional imperative. You know, some of my books just about kill me, you know, because I exhaust myself with the research and writing of them. Um, if you aren't driven to do it, then, then you just won't. But um, what you were just saying about research, so when it comes to actually doing that research, apart from the fact that it almost kills you, how do you actually approach it and when do you know to just stop researching and start writing? Okay, um, you know, people ask me this question all the time as well. How much research do you need to do? And my answer is as much research as you need to do. <laughs> Unfortunately, um, there is no definitive answer. Um, yeah, so you know, for me, how I like to work is I do all my research very early on in the, in the process because my research throws up ideas for my plot and it helps me you know, create character. I, I, I don't think that we should you know, create a character and then just kind of drop them into a historical setting because we are shaped by the world in which we live. Our psyche is shaped by the world in which we live. And so um, I see a lot of anachronistic characters, you know, feisty girls um, in medieval times. When if they, if they spoke back to their father like, like that, they would, they would be whipped, you know. Um, just little things like that. So I know the history first, and then I allow my character and plot to grow, to, to grow organically out of my knowledge. I start knowing nothing and I end up feeling like I'm, I could give a lecture on the subject, you know. Um, now, as I don't start writing 
until I can feel the story really tingling in my fingertips when I'm desperate to start writing. And so often it will be, like I'm talking months and months and months and months and months. Um, you know, because I plan, you know, my story really well, until I have a strong plan and until I, I know as much as I possibly can. What happens though is as I'm writing, the story will throw up things I don't know. And um, so my, how I do it is as I'm writing a scene, for example, I might have my hero pour my heroine a glass of wine. And I think, what did they drink out of in those days? Did they have glass goblets? What would they drink out of? And I'll make a note in my notebook, drinking implement, question mark, and keep on writing. And then I go, well, did they have bottles? Did wine come in bottles? I don't think they did. Wine bottles, question mark. And then I might just, you know, Describe the rain beating against the glass windows. I don't think they had glass windows back then. And so instead of stopping and researching all of these things, I write my scene, I lay down, I'm always pushing my story ahead. And then when I've only got like five minutes or 10 minutes, like when I'm cooking dinner or I'm waiting to pick my daughter up from, you know, from touch footy, I research and answer those questions that night and then the following morning, I go through and I make sure that everything is historically accurate before I push on with the story again. Because what I find people do is that they get, they think, oh my gosh, how did people go to the toilet in, si in 16th century Venice? And then they spend a week finding out the answer. And then they find out what well, an actual fact, I don't really describe them going to the toilet. So I probably didn't need to know <laughs> so, that. So, yeah. you know, I try and pursue only what I really need and I, I don't ever let the research stop me from writing. Yeah. That, that comes back to the efficiency too. Efficiency! That you about research as much as you can, yeah. then start writing, and if anything comes up, Google it later. Yeah. Good. Okay. That's generally what I do too. I'm writing anything. Essays, writing yeah. a presentation at work or something. I research everything. I was always the person who hadn't started their essay report at uni until a couple days before but I could write it quickly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the thing that stops people from writing is lack of knowledge. So they don't know enough about their characters, they don't know enough about their situation, they don't know enough about their setting. And so, you know, they have just like, you know, the broad outlines of their story. So whenever you're stuck, you simply have to go and find out what you don't know. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Better Words. If you enjoyed it, we'd love it if you left a rating or review on iTunes. It really would mean the world to us. And you can also find us at our website, betterwordspodcast.com and on social media at betterwordspod on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Bye. Bye.